Hey everybody, this is Jeannie Faulkner, and welcome back to Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics for 2020. Happy New Year, everybody. I missed you guys. We had a good long break there, didn't we? I hope everybody had a great holiday season. I sure did. Um, I just spent it with my family. Seems like mostly I spent it making coffee and food in the kitchen, and then having really great conversations and meals with all my people. And, you know, I was reflecting today how different it is um, from early in motherhood where, yeah, you're still all about the kitchen, but it's a really different experience. Um, instead of mealtimes being a, you know, big chaotic hassle, when you have grown-up kids, it's a big collaborative joy. It's super fun. So don't worry, mamas and papas, mealtime gets better. Now, for those of you who are new to Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics, this is the podcast where we have smart conversations about pregnancy, parenting, and top politics, and about feminism, and healthcare, and prenatal care, and birth, and how we move about our lives as women and as parents once we have children in our lives. I wrote the books, Common Sense Pregnancy, Mom's Side of the Story, and The Complete Illustrated Birthing Companion. And all of those are based off the fact that I spent almost 20 years as a labor and delivery nurse. Plus, I'm the mother of many, which means I've racked up a whole lot of experience in those arenas, and I want to be sure and share all of that with you. Am I the expert? Yeah, in some ways I am. But it, but when it comes to your own pregnancy, parenting, and politics, you are. You are your own expert. My job is to just help get good information to you so you can continue forming opinions and making decisions that are good for you and yours. Um, that's what we talk about here on The Politics. There is a lot to talk about this week, and I'm going to keep my rambling to a minimum because my guest and I are ready for a good long conversation. Now, I've gotten some emails lately from people who want to know, why did I decide to combine you know, pregnancy, parenting, and politics as my podcast's theme? Since it seems like pregnancy and parenting naturally go together, but maybe not so much politics. And here's my answer. None of those events, pregnancy, parenting, politics, none of them exist all on their own. They don't exist in a silo. They're all interconnected in a million different ways. And the more we're aware of how they connect and interact and react um, and affect each other or, you know, restrict us in our lives or help us thrive, the better off we are. Information is power. Now, specifically, I believe that we as, you know, global citizens and citizens of the United States, we have a really big say in how policies, laws, and cultural practices cross paths with our day-to-day -day lives. We have the power of the vote, the press, and the market. And it may seem right now like you know, we're powerless over what's happening in Washington, D.C., or, you know, maybe even in our own state capitals. But the truth is, we're in the heat of a very important election season. 
we're getting close to choosing who will be our candidates for president and for many seats that will be up for re-election in the Senate. And who we vote for will determine the kind of policies and priorities those administrations will set. So this week, we're going to start off this new year and new decade talking with a woman who knows all about this. Let's take a real, real quick break and then get right back to this week's guest. Okay, we're back, and I'm super excited about this week's guest. Emily Tish Sussman is the host of the podcast, Your Primary Playlist, and she has worked on a variety of political campaigns over the last decade while serving as senior advisor to various organizations that are committed to progressive change, much like we are. As a leading Democratic political strategist, she's been a frequent guest, and you've probably seen her on networks like MSNBC, Fox News, and CNN. Your primary playlist is your definitive guide to the 2020 presidential primary, explained by the women who know it best. Every week, uh, Emily Tish-Sussman, who is a veteran expert of political campaigns and issue advocacy, Um, You can join her to talk issue by issue and candidate by candidate for a comprehensive primer on what you need to know to feel informed and ready to cast your ballot. Voting day is coming up real soon, folks, so let's get Emily on the line. Hi, Emily. It's Jeannie. How are you? Hi, good. How are you? I'm doing really well. Emily, where are you located? I'm in New York City right now. We uh, just moved here after living in Washington for about 10 years. Wow. What part of, of the city are you in? The Upper West Side, the place nice. with all the families. <laughs> nice, nice. And is it just horrible cold right now? Um, it's it's pretty cold. It's cold and it just feels sort of in your bones cold. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. I'm I I'm interested particularly because I just had my oldest daughter back home for the holidays for a couple of weeks and we're in Portland, Oregon where it's yeah, it's cold, but mostly it's just damp gray and drizzly and she had to go back home. Um she lives in the city and I'm feeling for her. <laughs> feeling for her. <laughs> it's been so windy. I don't know why. Yeah. Weather. Dang it. I know. (laughs) Weather. Well, it's been, I I feel like it's really getting me because I have like the toddler struggle right now. No hat, no gloves, you know, throwing a fit. And I'm like, guys, this is cold. You should be putting your hats and your gloves on. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, oh my God, we could have a whole conversation about how to get toddlers dressed for the weather without losing our damn minds. But oh, I wouldn't, I honestly, I wouldn't have an answer for how to do it without losing my mind. <laughs> yeah, I, well, since we're on the subject, and I know my listeners are going to want to know, I know, I remember, um, we had a beach trip in November with when our, my daughter, who is now almost 20, was, um, I think she was three. And in her mind, beach trip means you wear a bathing suit, duh, and you go to the beach. Well, it was raining. It was unseasonably cold. And she insisted that she was not putting on anything other than her bathing suit. That was it. We had tantrum after tantrum over it. And finally, I just said, okay. (laughs) Yeah, you you have to sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, 
between the little house that we had rented and the two block walk down the street to the beach, it she was convinced, oh, okay, I'll put on a sweatshirt. Oh, okay, I'll put on pants. I'm not putting on shoes. Okay, I'll put on shoes. And, you know, she learned by experience. She did have a complete hissy fit the entire way. But by the time we got to the beach, she was dressed appropriately. <laughs> yeah, sometimes I wonder if they're too young to be, I guess we'll call it experiential learning, but right. I, I just lose that fight sometimes. <laughs> yeah, me too. That's. I think that's where the whole concept of choose your battles came from, from the, <laughs> from the toddlers. <laughs> exactly. Trying to dress them appropriately. That's all. That's all we're trying to do here. <laughs> <laughs> well, Emily, I read a bit of your professional bio before we got you on the line today, but yours is a resume that just keeps going. It's amazing. <laughs> so I Thank always you. like to ask the first hard question, which is this, who are you and what do you do? So my name is Emily Tish Sussman. I am a podcast host of a political podcast called Your Primary Playlist. Which I and love. I am <laughs> Great. Uh, and I am a basically a, a professional democratic campaign strategist. Um, I've run campaigns for people, but moreover, I've run campaigns for issues. So I've worked on moving issues, moving issues through, um, through the government, through the federal government, both at a congressional level and an administrative level. Uh, and now I spend a little bit more time trying to make sure that we can break down the barrier between regular people that want so desperately to be informed but can't figure out how to sort between news sources, um, and also helping to train candidates and advocates to run for office. And so do both those things now. And you appear on camera on some of those news sources, correct? I do. That's been a piece of it, that I, I go on air as what they call a democratic strategist. So I appear on news programs to help contextualize whatever the news of the day is, or give a little bit of insight into what candidates are doing in their campaigns. And you're, are you also an attorney? I am also an attorney. I am still in good standing in the state of New York, <laughs> which is good news because my mother keeps coming back to that saying, well, you could just be a lawyer one day. But yeah. it's, been, it's been a little while since I've actually been a lawyer, so I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, but you <laughs> An know, attorney client would agree. As a political strategist, you're probably taking a lot of hits and your mom would prefer that you had a little bit. I mean, she doesn't want people dinging her daughter. Right. Well, I, I think that's probably true. Yeah. And I do think that nothing prepared me better for going on air. I spent the first couple of years that I was on air primarily on Fox News as a Democratic strategist. So I was kind of on the opposition, arguing yeah. the counterpoint of what the host and most of the guests were arguing. And I think there was no better preparation for that than a 1L law class. Like you better be prepared going into that first year of law class. <laughs> wow. You are a badass to the max extreme. I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah. How did you find yourself in this line of work? I mean, did you just it, know going to school that this is what you wanted to do? No. In fact, I didn't know that any of the things that I do right now are jobs. I didn't even know these were options of jobs. I, I was a little bit lost, to be honest with you, when I was in school. I felt really passionate. I felt, you know, to borrow a term from President Obama, I was very fired up mm -hmm. um, about a, a variety of, of challenges in the world and, and, and equity and equality, but I didn't know what to do about it. And so I was very, I was frustrated. Um, and so I, my undergraduate degree is in social work. I thought maybe that was the way that I was going to help people. 
And then I went to go work on a campaign right after I graduated college. And it was like something just woke up in me. Like, yeah. oh, all these things that I've been doing, I didn't know these were skills and I didn't know these could help in a workplace. Um, and so it, it was like my whole my whole world changed. My, and uh, so we lost that campaign, but there had been a lot of lawyers on the campaign. And I thought, well, if they can do it, maybe I can do it. That seems like a pretty good way to, ad- to be an advocate. And so I applied and went to law school. But even going to law school, I thought had been something that was for people that were really smart, and I was only sort of medium. <laughs> but I, <laughs> that you know, I hadn't, I had been sort of mediocre in school up to that point, so that's what I thought. But I also, I really loved law school. I it was a great education, and I do think it really sharpened my thinking. And afterwards, I went right back onto a campaign. Right after I graduated, I worked in voter protection, like the legal department for President Obama's campaign in Pennsylvania, so in a swing state. And it just, it launched a whole new option of careers for me. So from there I worked on, um, I worked on the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell for a couple of years, representing the members of the military who were being investigated and and kicked out under the law, Uh, went back to work on campaigns. And then I ended up working at the largest progressive think tank, the Center for American Progress. And I came in as a function expert. So it was something the think tank had never had before. So a think tank is made up of all these different departments of issue experts. So there's healthcare experts who know about healthcare policy. There's national security experts who know about foreign policy. But I came in as a function expert to say, we we can work across issues. And whatever your issue, you healthcare people, you foreign policy experts, If you guys are ready to move your issues instead of just, you know, like most of the time they write papers and do research, Mm -hmm. but if you guys are ready to either move something into law or fight back against a repeal on your issue, we should have a strategy for it and we should have a campaign and it should be structured. So there's some elements of campaigns that we can bring into every different, every different moment, every different campaign, but we have to, we have to customize it. There's not one cookie cutter format that we can use for everyone. They all have to be different. And so I would work with the issue experts to figure out how exactly we formulated that strategy and how we executed it. I love that. I love your career. I want it. I really do. (laughs) I love it. And I also, you know what I I really love is that you were down the road just a little bit before you had your wake up moment. And I think that so many women are you know, they're on this path and they think that they got to stay on that path because they sort of set a goal that this is what I'm going to be when I grow up. And then you took a diversion and it turned out to be your passion. I love it. Yeah. And that, and I feel like that happened throughout my career that, and it's still Mm -hmm. happening that especially when you go into federal government and like federal advocacy, people are in, even within that, people are in lanes. You're either a fields person or you're a communications person or you're a legislative person. And so they, they think there's steps they have to follow, but I really jumped around. I did a little bit of everything. And so there were times when I was applying to jobs, when I felt like I was really inadequate because I didn't have those building blocks that a lot of other people had, you know, I hadn't gone through step by step because I'd sort of jumped around and gone to where I saw a really interesting opportunity. But then when I got to a more senior level, I realized that having had that varied experience 
made me such a more interesting employee and an interesting candidate. And that's what I end up looking for, for people that I'm hiring, people that can bring different perspectives. Like I know how to find the people that have the same perspectives, but I want interesting perspectives and a varied background so that we can get more interesting outcomes. So now I feel great about having a varied background. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I get it. I I mean, you're multi-passionate, multi-dimensional. You've got your fingers in a lot of pies. And I, I think that we're starting, we're at this point in maybe specifically women's career history where it's okay to do that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I feel very strongly that my perspective really has changed. I think from before I had kids to after I had kids that, that we need to be not just valuing, but centering all of the different aspects that come into our lives when we become parents and when we go through, you know, having to work while sick and pregnant, like there's different perspectives that you bring. And these aren't things, these aren't side things, but these are actually central to the workforce. Right. So we should really be centering them and treat them like it's part of, you know, you get a sick day, you get a sick day, you know, like it's, it's the same. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we emailed a little bit before this conversation and you mentioned that you're currently pregnant and soon going to have a baby and that this is your third election cycle where you've been pregnant or had a newborn. Yeah. Yes, that is right. Every when I every news producer when I told them is like, "Do you time them this way? Do you time your children with elections?" <laughs> oh, yes, that's my plan. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh yeah, with my first child, um it meant that when I realized that I was pregnant, it meant that I it was in 2016, it meant that I couldn't go work on the presidential campaign the way I had been thinking about doing. Um, which was pretty devastating for me because I, I love working on campaigns. I felt very strongly about, about Hillary Clinton defeating Donald Trump in that election. Um, Uh, uh. (laughs) And that's why I had been planning to go work for the campaign. But then I realized that I was pregnant and I didn't feel like being pregnant and having a newborn. I didn't think that could work on a campaign. I will say there are a couple of people who have done it in this election cycle and my hat is off to them. I don't know how they're doing it, to be honest with you. They are super moms and dads. Um, but I just didn't see it as a career option. So it it kept me from going onto the campaign. It kept me in my job. Um, it did mean that I had I had my first child five days after I saw Hillary Clinton accept the nomination at the Democratic Convention. I was on CNN the day that I went wow. into labor. Um, and it also meant that I was on maternity leave for the entire fall. So I could do even more TV hits than I had before. So I was, because I wasn't also in my day job. So I was a media surrogate for the Clinton campaign. Um, and I brought my four week old baby to the set and I was, I was nursing in full hair and makeup in the green room just to make sure that I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. I know. These are the nuts and bolts of living. This is what it's really like. Even even the women with the fancy (laughs) hair and makeup on TV have their breast pads in and are timing their breastfeeding. This is what, this is women's lives. Oh my God. This is real. I mean, I, I pumped at the, the first democratic debate, like all over the place. And so I had to ask every network, like, Hey, do you have a place that I could plug in my pump? And and pump on the side. And the answer was usually no. When I ended up in a yep. you know gross bathroom on the side, like everyone has right. pumped in, in their right. entire lives. Yeah. 
Yeah. Look, you don't so want to be leaking on air. So it changed your perspective, didn't it? Yeah. It really did. It really did. Especially, to be honest with you, not just the the having kids and the having newborns, but Tell the me. pregnancy part. That I just was not well during any of my pregnancies. I mean, I was in Iowa for the caucus and I was like yeah. puking under the table. I mean, the fatigue was so intense. I used to sleep. And I mean, look, I'm privileged that I, I had an office. I shared it with a, a very broy straight guy who was very understanding. And I think <laughs> a little bit flipped out to be this close to the action of the pregnancy. But I mean, every day I would end up having to sleep on top of my shoe yeah. pile under yeah. my desk in between meetings. Um, I just really didn't appreciate how much of a toll the actual pregnancy and all three pregnancies would take on me. And I was so nervous about appearing like I couldn't do my job anymore that I was really pushing myself past the point of, of being able to perform and it wasn't good for me. Um, I gained a lot of weight because I was constantly basically eating to try to keep my energy up and not, and, and nauseous, my nausea down and I also think it, it it impacted me as a manager because I don't think the staff around me had really understood what I was going through. And so they interpreted it as me not being happy with their work or, you know, not performing. Oh, um, <laughs> you were the first pregnant person in their, in their professional lives, maybe. Yeah. I, for most of them, I was. Yeah. And a relatively yeah. young, I mean, campaigns are just staffed by relatively young people in general. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And staffed a lot by men. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So they just really didn't, as much as I could explain it, they still didn't really get that it wasn't about them, to be honest. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think that, that that also kind of makes a statement about what women in any professional capacity do when they're working while pregnant. They try to soldier on. They try to act like It's just me, you know, I'm the same me as before, but you're not. And it's not normalized in any professional capacity or in most. You know, I was pregnant while I was a labor and delivery nurse back in that career. And yeah, and I was working night shift. So even under those conditions where I was literally delivering other women's babies, it was not okay for me to take an inordinate amount of time to go, um, you know, barf in a bathroom or take an extra break. No, you just have to do your thing. It's so crazy because it's not like you're asking for something extra. Like it's literally just to get through. Yes. Yes. Which I think is is a shift that we have yet to societally make. Yes, I know. <laughs> in understanding. Yeah. And I think it part of it is because people still think that well, you're the one who wanted to have the baby. Why should we accommodate you? It's your kid. You made that choice, which, you know, 50% mm. of the time we didn't make a choice. We just got pregnant, you know, 50% of pregnancies are yeah. unplanned. But even if a hundred percent of pregnancies were planned, we're actually providing society with a pretty darn valuable service of, you know, supplying the next generation of humans. We're, we're doing, a, right, exactly. we could work around yeah, it a little yeah, bit. We're doing a good <laughs> job here, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. You know, 
And I will, this is like maybe, maybe sharing too much, but we've had now three kids. We will have had three kids in, in three and a half years and none of them were actually planned. It just turns out we are incredibly fertile. And again, we are very blessed. We've had a lot of friends yeah, who have I not had that experience. <laughs> but, but, but with every one of them, it was a surprise. And with every one of them, honestly, I cried. Like it wasn't that we didn't want kids. It was that I didn't know how to adjust the life that we had already figured out to some degree, to any degree. Um, I didn't know how to adjust it again. And it, and once I had gone through the pregnancy for the second and third, it was so daunting to think, oh, I can't go back. To, I can't go back there again. Like I yeah. feel like I just have a little bit of a handle yeah. on whatever the chaos that is our life now. I can't go back into having so, you know the, the intense fatigue, the nausea, the, you know, the, all of it. Turns out you can. <laughs> yeah, it turns out. <laughs> Here we yeah. are, nine months pregnant again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yep. So nine months, you're due pretty soon. Yeah, we timed it perfectly with the presidential primaries. Nice work. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, we yeah. worked backwards. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, you figured out when exactly could it be, okay, let's have sex now. That'll do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, you know, look, I had been planning on going out to the to the primary states again this year for the primaries. Even when I'm talking, I'm, you know, I'm planning with with news programs now around coverage for it. And I'm off air for the most critical time, basically. Yeah. Bummer. And yet, congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we, <laughs> I know this poor baby, we keep talking about it like a, it's a bummer. <laughs> but, you know, every parent in every professional capacity at some point is at this point of going, how the hell are we going to do it? I don't, there, I mean, how is it even done? I mean, in every aspect of how are we going to yes, do this? Yes. So <laughs> you mentioned earlier about the weight gain. Tell me about it. Tell me yeah. how that was for you. I mean, I get it. A lot of people will think you, you know, a lot of women these days gain a lot of weight. Sometimes it's just because it's the first time in their life that they really feel free to just eat. And so they go for it and they gain a lot of weight. Sometimes it's because if you don't eat almost all the time, you are going to throw up and feel horrible and therefore you gain weight. Sometimes for some women, it's because they really don't have access to the kind of foods that they need. And so they eat what is cheap, easy, fast, and local. And, you know, there's all kinds of reasons for it. But it, the, the reality is, is that you're in a public, you're in a public job and gaining weight on air is probably, you probably got a lot of scrutiny for that. I know it feels like kind of a nightmare, yeah. right? <laughs> um, I was on air. I was on air for before I got pregnant um, and throughout the entire pregnancy, all of them, um, and then went back on air about four weeks after. And with my first child, I gained about 80 pounds, mm -hmm. had begun to lose it, although really didn't lose very much, and then gained another on top of that. So all in total, I probably gained about a hundred pounds over two years being on air. Um, and I, you know, none of my clothes fit, you know, there's some clothes that you need to wear on air to kind of go with the look, none of them fit. So I was, um, I had found basically just some like very 
cheap clothes that I didn't want to replace. So they were fraying. So like the whole look was just getting really messy in this pregnancy I've gained. Uh, so I had lost almost all of the weight, got pregnant again. Um, I've gained only about half as much weight in this pregnancy. And so I've actually mm-hmm. been able to do rent the runway. So, so I, rent, I rent my clothes now. Cause so now I have yeah. nice looking TV clothes to go on air. Um, but I mean, the, the weight gain was a combination of things. Just as you said, you know, part of it was that I used to exercise every morning before work. I like, I felt good doing that. I felt so tired. I didn't feel like I had the motivation to do it, the energy to do it. Um, I felt like most of my job was meetings all day. And so in order to keep my, my energy up and my nausea down, that I was just eating constantly throughout the day. And I was a little bit depressed, just trying to figure out what my life was going to be like. I felt like I was at the pinnacle of my career and trying to figure out, was I tanking my career by not being able to, to work really long hours anymore? Um, I, I, that's honestly really how I felt is that I, I had always really been used to the fact that there's just being able to, to outwork the opposition um, and put in whatever hours it took. And as much as, you know, whatever you had to do, you had to do. And I was just, being, I was so frustrated by feeling physically constrained in a way that I never had been before. Yeah, uh, that I was just sort of eating my feelings. Which, I mean, non-pregnant, I love to eat my feelings. So that me was too. I love it. <laughs> nothing better than English muffins with jam and donuts and peanut butter cookies. They are really good for those That's kinds of. So good. <laughs> They're so, so good. good. They're so good. I know. You know. And my look, my look on air just kind of kept getting worse and worse. And I would get. I've. I've. I'm used to a relatively, I have a relatively high threshold for hate mail. I've always gotten some of it, mm-hmm. um, but it was just getting really, really nasty. Um, you know, just a lot about how horrible I was looking. And then I actually did start to hear from producers that I needed to pull my look together a little bit more. Um, cause I was just looking kind of messy cause I didn't want to acknowledge like this was my body and this is how I was looking and, mm. and dressing for it. That's not nice. That must've felt awful. It was like a real kick you when you're down. Oh my God. That's <laughs> awful. I don't like them for that. <laughs> yeah. That was, that wasn't that great. Yeah. So I've what did that do to... for you? Was uh, it motivated? Was it motivating or was it demoralizing or a little um, of both? A little bit of both. I think it was probably first demoralizing and then a little bit motivating. Um, yeah. But I've also throughout all three pregnancies tried to tried to hide that I'm pregnant on air as much as I possibly can. Like I'd for rather self-protection? Have for self-protection. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And and I, I kind of had this perception. I don't, I don't know if it came from me or came from external, but that People didn't want to hear news analysis from someone who's visibly pregnant and they didn't want to see people in political debates who are visibly pregnant. Yeah. Like it feels like we have like a little asterisk next to someone who's visibly pregnant. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard enough for people to understand or accept, you know, political strategy and commentary from a woman still. But if you, you know, if she's wearing the mommy hat, that's even more um, diminutizing. Right, exactly. Like, imagine me coming in as an expert to talk about something that's not even related to women. Like, yeah. <laughs> right. Like, if you're wearing the mommy hat, you're supposed to only wear the mommy hat. Like, that's the perspective right. you're supposed to bring. Yeah, which is 100% bullshit. But yeah, yeah, that's still the world we live in today. Yeah, and so it's it's changed a little bit, even in 
pretty quickly in the last couple of years where, or maybe I just know that I am now so visibly pregnant, I don't have a choice. But um, I do feel a little bit more comfortable looking pregnant on air. Um, I guess I'm hopeful that people will now hear that perspective. Excellent. So, you know, for a lot of, a lot of um, listeners, they are, you know, certainly not in an advocacy or political arena, and they're just going about their lives being normal women, um, perhaps not really politically connected. And they, I hear from younger women all the time that feminism isn't really relevant to them because, you know, I got through school, I've got the job I want. And then they get pregnant or they have their baby and all of a sudden they get it that, you know, advocacy and women's rights and parents' rights are priorities that need to be addressed. And I think it starts, you know, for a lot of women before pregnancy, certainly, but then when they get into the healthcare and specifically prenatal care arena, they lose a lot of their own agency, their authority. Um, the way that prenatal care is delivered is not always done in a way that serves women and families all that well, and certainly doesn't put women in the driver's seat. What was your experience on that? I'd say I I fall into that category with younger women who are resentful of of being called a feminist or identifying with feminism, feeling like, oh, well, you know, I don't need someone to help me or qualify the work that I'm doing. I'm doing it on my own. Um, and then I think part of it was going through the prenatal process and pregnancy. And part of it, I think, was also just having a little bit more experience in the workforce mm-hmm. that it, oh, I'll, I'll put this through the, th- through the frame of presidential elections, as is my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that Those mm-hmm. are my time markers. Mm-hmm. That in the 2008 primary between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, I was sort of split between the two candidates. I wasn't sure who I was going to support. Mm-hmm. But then I got very resentful of the idea that I would that I should be supporting Hillary Clinton because of feminism or because I was a woman and ended up supporting Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. In 2016, I was on air as a media surrogate for the Clinton campaign. And Madeleine Albright said there is a special place in hell for women who do not support other women. The amount of TV segments I had to do to defend that statement, I can't even begin to tell you. I bet. It was so many. Because there was a very large backlash, both from conservatives, but also from young women who were starting to lean towards Bernie Sanders as a primary candidate. There was a very large backlash that they didn't want to be spoken to in that way. Yeah. And for the and it was the first time that I really got it. Like, I really identified with Madeleine Albright in that statement. Yeah. And I wanted to be able to say that I like, I like that she is a, I like that Hillary Clinton is a powerful woman. I like that she steps into the room as a policy expert. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to be able to say those things openly and not feel like it had to be qualified in some way. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I, and I see it even more now. Yeah, I do too. Now, I'm, you know, considerably older than you. So I've been through a lot of you know, presidential cycles at, just as a common citizen. And I'm at a point where probably my, my most, the most important thing for me in this cycle is, um, we got to have a a woman president. We just have to have a a democratic woman president. It's my top priority because I really believe that when women are actually represented, and of course, as you know, we 
never have been, even with 20% you know, representation in the House, so what? We're 51% of the population. We're still not represented. And having never had a woman at the top of the ballot, you know, I think that when we do, this country is going to change in profound and fundamental ways that benefit not just women and parents and families, but every single citizen and resident of the U.S. and the world. I think it's going to be a complete game changer. What do you think? Look, having women actually at the table, like truly at the table, both as mainstream candidates and hopefully as electeds, is is game changing. Yeah. Like, I think we can say it in theory, but we're seeing so many ways that it's actually playing out. Yeah. One of the most consequential things I think happened during the 2018 midterm elections is that a woman who was running for Congress with young children, so just to put into context, women usually only run for Congress or elected office at all once their children are grown. Yeah. There's a lot of reasons why. Some of them are that are perception. Some of them they feel like they have response, you know, responsibilities that they can't walk away from. But we're seeing women run for office more and more, either before they have children or while their children are young or even pregnant. I am so grateful. Which is amazing. For that. So grateful for that. And I'm so happy about yeah. that. And so one of these women who was running for Congress, so basically and the other like dirty secret about when you're running for office is that you basically don't take a salary which is obviously very financially difficult mm-hmm. for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. But so one woman who was running for Congress said, wait a second, who's supposed to be watching my children while I have, I mean, I'm working. Like, where is this magical childcare account supposed to be coming from? Because up until 2018, it was illegal to use campaign funds, so money from a campaign budget, to pay for childcare. And so she was like, wait a second, who do they think is paying for my childcare? Yeah. So she so she she took it to the Federal Election Commission and they ruled in her favor that you can now use federal accounts to pay for childcare and I think that is a game changer. Absolutely. Because and it's changing state by state now as well. Yeah, because previously the people that were running, you know, for any any position on the ballot were usually men who had wives at home providing their childcare. Exactly. Yeah. So that's what I mean when I say we have to change we have to center women at the at the the decision making points so that we don't treat childcare pregnancy you know equal pay as constituency issues it's like friends issues they're economic issues yeah. they're core to us to be able to do our jobs right. right and not a privilege that is given to women but simply a a reality of life exactly yeah. Exactly. One of the things that I'm the most grateful for where I was working, the place that I was working when I had maternity leave, um, was that it was very culturally normal there for all of the men to take the full parental mm-hmm. leave, which I know is very unusual. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, you know, if, if men have, if women have parental leave, but if men have parental leave at all, to be able to take the full amount, it was very, nor- it had really been normalized in the culture just because it offsets costs so much. You know, if one parent takes the first leave and then the second parent takes the second leave so they um, they can extend the amount of time they don't have to pay for child right. care. And it, what the, the side impact it ended up having was that there was no penalty, like there was no work penalty for having taken your full parental leave because everybody did. Yeah. yeah. If it was just women, I think there would have been a little bit of a cultural penalty, but it was not the case. The men all took it too. And I'm very grateful for that. Oh man, parental leave. 
I, <laughs> this is why, oh my God. When I um, heard Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez saying the other, I think it was last week or the week before, where she was talking about how anybody um, who's owned a dog thinks that taking a puppy in, away from its mother before eight weeks is abusive and something that nobody would considers appropriate to do. Yet we send mothers back to work after a six week maternity leave. Yeah. If they get that time at all. If they get that time at all, whether they, you know, for many women, it's not a, a matter of their employer's policy. It's a matter of who can go six weeks without a paycheck. Most of us can't. Exactly. The yeah. six week is only guaranteed for people to not lose their jobs. Right. Doesn't mean they get paid. Most people don't. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, what what we ask women to go to is inhumane. It is inhumane. It's ridiculous. And it's the reason why, you know, anxiety and depression rates are so high among women in the postpartum stage. It's why women don't breastfeed. It's, you know, it's amazing. And it's obviously the reason why so many women off ramp from their careers because they get to that point and they go, I can't do this. I cannot do this to myself or my child. It also just, it really makes me question, like, what kind of society do we want? Like, do we really want all of these children to be in early phases of life without spending that time bonding with parents? Like, that doesn't make apparently, any sense if we were trying Apparently to. we do. Right, apparently that we is, do, but it, we, it makes no sense. Right. In the context of the fact that all of our government policies so far have been represented by men. Once we have women representing our interests, it's going to make total sense. It, it does. And I, and I still, I just want to kind of come back to this point that I feel very strongly about that. I think it takes women in the, at the table, in the driver's seat to be normalizing the policies. And then the second piece of that is that we also need men to be taking advantage of them. Because yes, even if the absolutely. laws aren't there, then we need the men to be taken. Because unfortunately, that's the way that we normalize it. Yeah. That's the yeah. way we sort of like get the acknowledgement that this, oh, everybody's doing this. Because we, yeah. it, it would not be an ideal scenario if we create a more equalized playing field for women, but then it's still stigmatized. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I really let's feel very strong about like keeping men in this conversation. And also men need to be leading these conversations, not just yeah. a, oh yeah, I believe in that too for women, but I believe in that for myself. I believe in that for my children. I believe in that for, you know, the, the future of our society, that these are the policies that have to change. Exactly. I mean, what, there was a great debate moment earlier this year where Cory Booker in one of the presidential debates started talking about his support for reproductive health and saying, I don't know why we keep talking about our relationship to women as the only way that we can support reproductive health and reproductive rights. How about it's just their bodies? Yeah. And reproductive rights are not just women's issues. You know, guys are affected by us having children too. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that seems to be a surprise to a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's also a surprise that 100% of unplanned pregnancies are caused by, you know, men ejaculating. Exactly. <laughs> you are breaking news here. I know it. I know it. I Yeah. That's what I'm trying to do in my life here. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's talk about platform issues a little bit. I mean, I am 
I am at a point where universal healthcare, I believe, is the only way to go. What's important to you? God, I, I wish I had been better prepared for that to come with like one, two, three. I think oh, that's okay. <laughs> just, just, <laughs> just wing it. What's important to just, you? Um, I, I think it really is the structural things that are important to me that it is, you know, beyond just like one issue at a time. I think that um, making sure that we have like the right kind of representation and decision making in place is what feels really important to me right now. I mean, I've spent the last yeah. couple of years working on a variety of issues, everything from healthcare um, to immigration to gun violence reform, um, and just seeing where the levers of power are in a lot of these conversations. It, it's not always connected to the humanity. In fact, it's often not connected to the, the humanity of how these issues actually play out for people. So a lot of it is the structural stuff for me. I have to say that the way that we dehumanize and villainize immigrants is, it breaks my heart every time. Oh, me too. Me too. That's just unbelievable to me. Especially, it's, you know, 2020, man. We're all immigrants. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's unbelievable. Just the way that we are so willing to not have to face the humanity of people who are just trying to get a better life. Right. Yeah. When I, um, so the way that I've structured my podcast is that I bring on an issue expert for every, uh, for every episode to, to do a deep dive into like, what are the different issues that are relevant and where the different presidential candidates stand on it. And when I brought on the immigration expert to do the immigration episode, the way that she was talking about to understand that, that people cross the border, you know, come into this country, like you would never do that unless you felt like you were saving your child. Yeah. Like if you felt like you had any other option, you would never subject your children to this. And right. she, I mean, I'll tell you, it was the only episode I cried in. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I, you know, I, you probably have too. I've, I've had the opportunity to travel to some developing countries and see the level of poverty that people live in. And when you know that regardless of their circumstances, everybody is just trying to do their best to live a decent life and to make life a little bit better for their community and their families and hope that their kids can go to school and eat and get health care. They're not asking for anything that we aren't asking for. It's just that their conditions are so extremely um, deprived. And how people cannot understand that, that the level of privilege that people bring to this conversation where they vilify people who are just trying to survive is astounding to me. It's right. unbelievable. I do think, though, that if more and more people traveled in the world and were able to see in real life what we're talking about here, they'd get it. But. Mm -hmm. You know, people live in their silos and in their little bubbles and they only look at what they want to look at. So, right. Yeah. And that that has, has just become more and more extreme. Right. You know, we thought the internet was going to give people so many perspectives, but it turns out people just end up in their silos. They right. Just read their read their news feeds and get just reconfirming, uh, what, is it, what is it called? Confirmation bias. Yes, exactly. Where people actually seek out news to confirm their pre-existing bias as opposed to trying to be 
to open and see more. Yeah, and there's plenty of it. There's plenty of that. that yeah, news you that can find it. No, you problem. can find bias to confirm any bias right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, I want to talk a little bit about down ballot candidates because you know, I think that for a lot of people, if they're becoming politically aware, they're paying most attention to the you know presidential election, but. And, and they don't necessarily understand why down-ballot candidates are also critical. And I'm wondering if you could explain or talk a little bit about that. Look, the presidential is the big, the big sexy one. Yeah. But it is the local elected office that really impacts your life. It's everything from how the trash is collected, the environmental factors. It's, you know, who is staffing your towns and cities. These are the things that actually really have an impact on the things that that are in your day-to-day life. A good friend of mine wrote a book recently. Um, her name's Kate Black. She wrote a book, uh, Women's Guide Running for Office. And one of the things that she put in this book that I just love is that she has a little guide to, if you're thinking about running for office, what office you would run for. You know, what problem you're trying to solve mm-hmm. for. And mm-hmm. then she kind of helps you figure out, like, is it state-level government? Is it county? Is it city? So these are incredibly important offices, but also if you're thinking about maximum impact, the presidential campaign will have thousands of staffers and tens of thousands of volunteers. But what does it take to make a difference in a local race? They don't even sometimes have full-time staff at all. It's just them. So, you know, if you're thinking about whether it's running for office yourself or volunteering or even donating there can be a huge impact in, in some of these local races. And that ends up being the stepping stone. You're not just impactful on its own, but also the stepping stones for higher office. Yeah. That when, when you know, whether it's state parties or people are, are evaluating who are good candidates, a big part of what they look to is track record. Do you know how to run a campaign? Do you have it? Are you known to people as someone who is effective? I'm doing... Um, Right now, I'm recording uh, deep dives into the swing states for, uh, for my podcast for the presidential election. And so I was just speaking with an expert yesterday. So we're doing a deep dive into each of the early uh, battleground states So we'll and each of the early primary states. So we'll do one on Iowa, one on New Hampshire, one on Nevada, one on South Carolina. So I was speaking with an expert yesterday in South Carolina. And part of one of the things that she was saying to me is that people in South Carolina really value community over party. And so they want, like, they will, if they feel like someone has been delivering for them, they don't care what their party affiliation is. But like, if they really know that neighborhood, if they really know that district, they are with them all the way. Hmm. And so that's one of the things that impacts uh, once they start to look up ballot Hmm. that I thought was really interesting. But no, down ballot, local, state, county, that's where all the action is happening. Yeah. And if you've ever thought about even just dipping your toe in to run for office, it's a great way to do it. I mean, um, I also interviewed Senator uh, Maggie Hassan, who is the senator for New Hampshire, used to be the governor for New Hampshire. She just started as a regular person. She was an advocate. Her child, uh, her child has uh, needed to be have special programs in some way. I can't remember how. But so she just started advocating and everyone around her was so moved by what a strong advocate she was. They said, you know what? You should run for office. Like you should be in charge here. Mm -hmm. 
And so she she kind of went up the ballot and ended up as the governor and now the senator of the state. So many women, though, aren't willing to um, run for office because they don't think they're qualified. They don't know what the job entails. They don't know how they'd figure out how to do it. And they don't want the public scrutiny. It's really intimidating. Yeah. Yeah. It does feel intimidating. And you do have to put yourself out there. And the other thing you have to do is ask people to, for money yeah. to donate to you. It's another thing people do not like to do. Right. But nobody likes to do that. No candidate likes to right. do that. But that's actually one of the, the biggest things that I hit when I do these um, trainings for particularly women who are running for office is that you are the expert. Do not let anybody knock you off your game. You are the expert through your lived experience. It may be educational. It may be the work-wise. But the biggest way that you are the expert is that you live in that community mm -hmm. and you know mm -hmm. it. And therefore, you are the expert through your lived experience. And so every one of the messages that you communicate through the way that you tell your story and the way that you talk to voters should always come back to this theme of the fact that, yes, I am like you. I live in this community. I am the expert on this community. Yeah. Yeah. I hope that that motivates. Women are always down. I know women are always downplaying it. They said, oh, well, I'm not, you know, like a climate water expert to be on the water board. Yeah, but you drink dirty water. Yeah. Like, no, you can be on it. That's one of the fundamental differences, I think, between women and men is women will say, yeah, but I'm not, da 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 And guys will say, but I am, da 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 Yeah, yeah. We got to shift that perspective. Yeah. <laughs> there was some crazy stat that um, that one of my friends told me that a group of men was asked if they think they're qualified to run for office. And they said, no. And then they said, Are you, would you consider running anyway? And like, I think over 50% said yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. That's, it's, we, we got to step it up as women, bring our confidence. Exactly. Yeah. So we've been on the line for a long time. And what I'd like to do is talk to you the whole damn day, but I know you have a life. So I want to ask you just a few more questions. And I want to talk about your podcast a little bit more. Your primary, it's called Your Primary Playlist. And- Yes. May I first say that I'm 100% jealous of your guest list. Nancy Pelosi, <laughs> Stacey Abrams, Cecile Richards. Lady, I, I want your connections, please. Oh, my God. You get to talk to it some turns, of the most brilliant women. That has been a lot of fun. I, I'll be honest with you. It turns out women love being able to go on a platform and talk about substantive issues. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, that's been great for us. Yeah. Yeah. Let's make sure that listeners know where to find it. Great. So your primary playlist is on all podcast platforms. You can find it on Apple podcasts, um, on Stitcher. We also have an Instagram account at your primary playlist, or we'll be teasing out soon the beginning of season two. Uh, that is where you can find it. But so the show, we basically came to the show trying to answer the question that going into this presidential primary, that not only were people looking to try to figure out which candidate they would support, but they were trying to figure out what criteria they would use. Like how would they even decide how they would evaluate candidates? Because even if we have a little bit of time to consume news, to read policy platforms, to watch debates, it's hard to contextualize a lot of the policy positions they have. Mm -hmm. So we kind of just repeat something that we 
feel like we trusted because that's normal. That's what everybody does. Who has time to like really get into a deep dive. Um, And so we wanted to be an objective resource where we bring in a lot of it came from honestly, my own experience that if I was going on TV and had to talk about an issue that I was only a little bit familiar with, I would call an, an expert that I knew. Yeah. And I would say, Hey, can you help me contextualize what's happening right now? And so then I can formulate my own opinion about it. So we kind of took that perspective. And one of the things that I realized that I'd always done is that I was always calling on all of these women experts. They were good at explaining the issues to me. They did not talk down to me. They really helped me through it. And so when we were when we were coming up with the show, when we were creating the show, we felt like if we were going to be creating a platform, we had to give it to women who are definitely the experts in their field, but not always considered the foremost experts because they didn't really put the time into promoting themselves. So we definitely have some of those higher profile guests like Speaker Pelosi and Stacey Abrams. But we also have a lot of experts that are less well-known, but are definitely the experts in their field. I mean, the the immigration expert that I referenced, she was the legal counsel in Obama's White House who oversaw DACA, the Deferred Action Program. Mm -hmm. Um, She was the person the White House brought in to do it, but she's not a name that you would necessarily know unless you're deep in immigration. And Angie Kelly, I love you, you are a, a, a mentor and a, <laughs> and an idol for me yeah. always. Um, but so we wanted to make sure that we were bringing in those voices and we've kind of gone back and forth as to how much we talk about the fact that all of our experts are women. Yeah. At the, when we first launched the show, we felt like it was more powerful just to not talk about it as much and just to kind of let it be out there that, that women are experts and, you know, that will normalize women in power by hearing women talk about substantive issues more and more. But then by the end of the season, I'd kind of come to a different position in thinking that I had seen, even as much as these women are experts, they still didn't promote themselves that much. Yeah. They, they would always feel a little bit nervous about it. And so it, it just kind of reconfirmed that we needed to highlight the fact that, yes, we are unapologetically a show of female experts and they are, do not have to be qualified. You know, they don't have to have the little asterisk mommy hat on and they are experts who are women. And that is who we're going to hear the perspectives from. This election is going to be decided by women voters. So let's hear from the experts who are also women. I love it. I love it. And I get why women don't promote themselves. We have been raised from the womb with who do you think you are syndrome. And and when women put themselves out there, they get bashed about and nobody likes that. It doesn't happen to men the same way. So thank you. Thank you for providing this platform and service for women. It's so important. Oh, thank you so much for having me on. Yeah. Well, I get to do my last three rapid fire questions. Great. Yep. You ready for this? Okay. Okay. I think you've probably answered this question throughout, but I'll ask it anyways. What role does feminism play in your life? A pretty strong role. Um, I think about it both in terms of how do I position myself? How do I promote myself in my life? But also now that I have young children, I have both a boy and a girl. In some ways, I think that I have a little bit more of a path into how to be, how to raise a good feminist daughter, but I have a little bit less of a path to how to raise a good feminist son. And so I spend a lot of time thinking about that. How would you fill in the blank? Nobody ever told me that. That any of the things that I've done are jobs. (laughs) I didn't know that any of these things were jobs. (laughs) 
<laughs> Those, maybe they may not have been back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> they may not have been. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, my last question for you then is this, where are you in the world of motherhood? Um, current, do you expand your motherhood with numbers of children? I don't know. I guess I'm, <laughs> I guess right I'm in the really, middle of it. Yeah. Right in the midst of it, trying to figure out how to go from two children to three children and not totally lose myself in the process, to be honest with you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as, um, a, a fellow mother of many going to three, isn't as hard as going from one to two. And I think that going from one to two is nowhere near as hard as having your first baby. Thank okay. You. Well, that's encouraging. Yeah. It's feeling a little daunting right now. Well, yeah, you got to get through birth and, you know, the newborn stage. It is daunting, but the good thing is that um, you already have muscle memory and your brain knows how to do this. I mean, you know, you know what you're doing now. You know how to breastfeed a baby and carry a toddler in your hip. You know how to do that. I have to tell you, I'm confident in a lot of areas of my life. This is not a place that I am confident. So I will, I will use you as an inspiration. I will remember that, that, that I, I must know how to do it. Because I you do it. know how to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Of course, you don't know this child and each child comes with their own personality and, you know, set of, they, they have their own demand list, but you got this, you do, you got it. Yeah. Remember, I started this out by saying you're a badass to the max extreme. I, I stand behind that statement. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, Emily, I, I thank you. I have two toddlers in the middle of, of potty training. I will try to remember that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I sucked at potty training. I So pretty much my husband took care of that. <laughs> <laughs> As I'm cleaning sheets in the middle of the night, changing pajamas, yeah. I, will, I will try to remember that I'm a badass. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. It's a glamorous job we have. Exactly. Glamour. 24-7 <laughs> glamour. <laughs> well, Emily, it's been really fun to talk to you. And I would really love to have you on as a guest again, especially as we're going forward in this presidential campaign, and to just hear how things are for you as a mother of three now. That would be great. I don't I don't know how it's going to go. So I, I think I'm excited to share it, but I might show up crying. But also, I'd love to be on. And it's great talking with you. Great. It was a lot of fun. Well, thank you again. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said. Mama said. Mama said. That's it for this week, folks. Thanks for coming back and joining in this conversation in 2020. We're real glad you did. You can learn more about Emily Tish Sussman by finding her podcast, Your Primary Playlist, everywhere podcasts live. You can learn more about me at jeanfaulkner.com. That's J-E-A-N-N-E-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R.com. Email me, gene at jeanfaulkner.com. Tweet me at jeanfaulkner. And find us over on Facebook and Instagram at Common Sense Pregnancy. And let's make friends, shall we? Common Sense Pregnancy, Parenting, and Politics is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Mom's Side of the Story over on my website, and we'll talk again in two weeks. Bye-bye, everybody. Hey, guys. We're Sarah and Matthew Bivens, hosts of the Doing It at Home podcast, a show dedicated to empowering stories and resources around home birth. Our mission is to normalize home birth and encourage mamas and families to be educated, supported, and empowered by their birth choices. 
whatever they are. You can find the podcast in Apple, Google, Stitcher, the Pod Network, and on our website, diahpodcast.com.